Good evening and happy Sabbath, ASI. Good evening. Happy Sabbath. It is a wonderful, amazing, and God-given privilege to be with you this Sabbath evening to share my testimony. You see, despite growing up in the church, I was only heart converted seven years ago. And my very first ASI conference was shortly after that, just five years ago in 2010 in Orlando. And if you had told me back then that I would be standing on this stage this Sabbath evening to share my testimony, I would have thought that you were crazy. But this is evidence, this is evidence of the mercy and grace and transforming power of the Lord our God. And it, is, and it shows us that there is hope for everyone, even those who grow up in the church. But before I get ahead of myself and steal my own thunder, would you please pray with me? Lord God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're so merciful to us, and you love us so. Lord, I pray the Sabbath evening, the Sabbath that you have set apart, that the Holy Spirit would be with us, would be upon me, your humble servant, and that you and only you would be glorified. And Lord, I pray that each individual here in this room and whoever is watching on 3ABN would also receive the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit would give each individual hearing and comprehension, but not merely comprehension, but conviction. Conviction of that message which you want each individual to hear. I pray this in the powerful and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I'm a son of Korean immigrants. I'm an elder brother. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a former professional cellist, and I'm a corporate executive. Yet, as important and defining each of these facts is to my identity, the most important and most defining fact in my life is that I am the survivor of a chronic and deadly disease. Millions around the world have this disease. It runs in families and is passed on through heredity. It is a silent killer. There's no known cure for this condition, absent a literal miracle from the Lord himself. I am a survivor of congenital Christianity. Congenital Christianity is a spiritual condition which in some ways resembles true Seventh-day Adventist Christianity, but which is at its core superficial and lacks an authentic saving relationship with God. To make sure that we share a common understanding of this condition, I'd like to share with you a, a non-exhaustive list of symptoms. Are you ready for the symptoms? Are you ready? Would you like to know what they are? 
very well. One, you avoid talking about your faith because you don't want to have to explain what you believe because you're a little bit embarrassed by it. Two, you know that Saturday is the Sabbath. But come on, it's just a day, right? Three, you've heard that we have distinctive biblical beliefs about death, hell, and the sanctuary. But you're not quite sure what they are or why they even matter. Four, you hear people talking about the spirit of prophecy, but you're ambivalent about it, even though you've never actually read any of the books. Five, those beasts on the prophecy seminar flyer look strange and bizarre to you, and you've got no clue what it all means. Six, you think that megachurch down the street is way more fun, way more interesting. They've got great programs. They've got a great band. They've got coffee. They've got donuts. You think that megachurch down the street is way more interesting, but you feel a little guilty that you think that. Seven, you abstain from all unclean meats, except for pepperoni, bacon, and shrimp because they taste so good. And you abstain from all alcohol. Well, except for a, a little bit of beer and wine, but just socially, just socially. Well, and, and the hard stuff, only when mixed with orange juice or cranberry juice, because then you can't taste it, and it's got vitamins. Eight. You dutifully wait until after sundown on Saturday evening before you head to the multiplex to see Twilight in IMAX 3D. Nine, you go out to lunch after Sabbath church service because surely God would not want you to starve. And what they got at Potluck isn't nearly as tasty as those garlic breadsticks. And 10, this is the last one. You go to church most weeks because you want your kids to have exposure, even though you don't personally have any investment in the faith. These are just examples, but they should give you an idea of what we're talking about. Does any of this sound familiar? Does any of this sound familiar? Of course not you. This is ASI. This is the remnant of the remnant. Of course not you but perhaps a, a friend or a family member or a, or a fellow church member. Well, I have good news and I have bad news. Which would you like first? Sounds like the bad news, which is wonderful because that's the way I wrote this. <laughs> Thank you. The bad news is untreated congenital Christianity leads to eternal death 100% of the time. The bad news is that while the disease is passed down, the cure is not. You cannot be saved by your parents' faith. And the bad news is that you must affirmatively choose to be cured. This won't just get better on its own.
That's the bad news. But who wants the good news? Amen. The good news is that there is a cure, and I stand before you today as living proof. I testify to you that I have been cured by the love of Jesus and the power of the everlasting gospel. The good news is that if God could save a wretch like me, he can surely save you. And the good news is that it's not too late. It's not too late for you. Even if you've been suffering under the lukewarm malaise of congenital Christianity for years or even decades, it is not too late for you. God can still reach down from his throne and touch your heart and turn it from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I know that he can do this for you because he did it for me. My story begins three generations ago in the early 1900s when my great-grandfather was the second ever ordained Seventh-day Adventist pastor in Korea. Second ever. His son, my grandfather, also entered the pastoral ministry, and he went on to become the first native Korean to serve as president of the Korean Union Conference. His son, my father, did not enter the pastoral ministry, but he went to Adventist schools all his life until medical school, at which point he scored number one in the entire country on the medical board exams that year, all the while skipping class on Saturdays to observe the Sabbath in a country which required going to classes on Saturdays. And that's where I come in. Because I was just four months old when my father and mother came to this country with two suitcases and a baby to pursue his residency in Boston. So while I'm a 1.5 generation Korean-American immigrant, I'm a fourth generation Seventh-day Adventist. The faith has been passed down to me from its earliest days in Korea. And while many blessings come with this heritage in the faith, this history also brings with it a predisposition to congenital Christianity. My earliest spiritual memory goes back to when I was just four years old. I would come downstairs early on Sunday mornings to watch television while my parents slept. It didn't take me long to notice that it seemed every channel I turned to every Sunday morning was broadcasting a church service. And I was completely perplexed by it. Even at that age, I knew that Saturday is the Sabbath. This continued for some time until finally I decided that I would get to the bottom of this, that I would go ask my mother. And so I remember walking into the kitchen, walking into the kitchen where my mother was, was doing the dishes, and I asked her, Amma, which means mommy in Korean. I asked her, Amma, why are all these people going to church on Sunday? Don't they know that Saturday is the Sabbath? Before I tell you what she said, I need to set some context. My mother is a godly woman. She is a prayer warrior, a Bible worker, and church planter in the Korean immigrant community. I thank the Lord for my mother's faith. But at this time, at the time of this story, she was in a different place spiritually. So getting back to the story, I asked her, Amma, why are all these people going to church on Sunday? Don't they know that Saturday's the Sabbath? And without missing a beat, while she was washing the dishes, 
she said, I don't know, and left it at that. I don't know why she said, I don't know. Perhaps she was too busy. She was a young mother of a four-year-old and a two-year-old boy. That's a pretty busy gig while your husband is working over 100 hours a week at the hospital. That's a busy time. So perhaps she was too busy. Maybe she didn't know what to say. Maybe she didn't know how to explain it, or maybe she thought that even if she explained it, she, that I wouldn't understand. I don't know why she said that, but what I do remember that I walked away from that conversation completely confused and scratching my head. This is why the Lord in His divine wisdom commanded us in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, which is Bible language for all the time. If you leave your children confused, even when they're in beginners or kindergarten or primary, you increase their risk of congenital Christianity. You might think that they're too young to understand or to care, but they are paying attention much more than you know, and you have the opportunity to provide them the vaccine of a strongly biblical, age-appropriate foundation or leave them dangerously exposed on the shifting sands of confusion. The ensuing years of my childhood and adolescence read like a textbook case of congenital Christianity. In the sixth grade, I was pulled out of our local Seventh-day Adventist school for two reasons. The first reason were the excessive PDAs on the part of the high school kids at the co-located academy. We're not talking about personal digital assistance. iPhones were not the problem. The problem was public displays of affection. And it had gotten to a point where my parents no longer felt comfortable having their sixth grade and fourth grade sons attending that school, that Adventist school. The second reason was the academics. I was getting bored in the classroom, and I needed more challenge. And so in the sixth grade, through high school, I was in the public schools, which is actually quite good for me academically, but my faith was under assault from all sides continually. Specifically, my faith was under assault from the curriculum, the extracurriculars, and the peer pressure. We'll talk about all three. First, the curriculum. The curriculum was 100% secular and humanistic. From biology to English literature, I was exposed to the breadth of worldviews where humanism was exalted and God was torn down. Now, don't get me wrong. I have a passion for witnessing to the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated, or the W3s of our society. As missionaries to these groups, we need to be able to speak their language and understand their culture. But exposure to these worldviews can be dangerous if you're not strongly, firmly grounded in the reality of God and the truth of His Word. By beholding, you become changed. And if all you're beholding is Darwin, Kant, Rousseau, and Richard Dawkins, and you're not beholding Moses, Daniel, John, Paul, and the others, then you will be changed. At a minimum, you set yourself up for confusion, and more likely, you set yourself up for apostasy or even atheism. So that was the curriculum. 
But beyond the curriculum were the extracurricular activities. And whether sports or clubs or arts or academics, it seemed that everything conflicted with the Sabbath. And my unconverted heart struggled greatly with these conflicts because I wanted to achieve great things in the world. And I thought that my success depended on the validation of the world rather than relying on the mighty right arm of the Lord. In my case, I was gaining success as a cellist. I was one of the best in the state of California. And I was considering a career in music performance, in cello performance. A key part of establishing a track record in music is the competition circuit. But time after time after time, I had to decline participation due to the Sabbath. And this struggle was excruciating in my teenage mind. And this struggle was compounded by the fact that individuals in our very own Seventh-day Adventist church would encourage me to compete. There's a sweet older woman. She was a pillar of our local church and a strong supporter of the local music scene. She knew of my talent as well as my struggles. I'll never forget one Sabbath afternoon after the church service when she took me aside and she told me that it would be okay if I competed on the Sabbath. It would be fine if I competed on the Sabbath for two reasons. One, because I would be playing good classical music. And that's a whole nother sermon. <laughs> but friends, I will tell you this. Just because it sounds classical does not make it good. So that was the first reason. The second reason was that she said that I would be glorifying God with my talent. I'm convinced that she meant well. I believe that she meant well. But this well-intentioned church member was causing even more confusion for me and setting me up for compromise and ultimately full-blown congenital Christianity. We would do well to recall Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him or her if a millstone were hung around her neck and she were drowned in the depths of the sea. Friends, you don't have to be blood-related to someone to inflame their congenital Christianity. You can even be a well-intentioned church member. But be careful, because you might make yourself a contributing factor in someone else's congenital Christianity, and Lord have mercy on you if you do this. So we've talked about the curriculum and how it created conflict in my heart. We've talked about the extracurricular and how the extracurriculars and how those created conflict. But the third and the most powerful force assaulting my faith during my formative years was the peer pressure. Beginning in the sixth grade through my peers, I was exposed to the range of filth and wickedness that we unfortunately consider a normal part of growing up. Between the school bus, the sleepover, the field trip, the cafeteria, the popular media, and various and sundry set settings, wherever I turned, Satan was there to teach me what things are desirable, what things are pleasurable what things are required for social standing, what things are required for emotional fulfillment, what things are required for physical gratification, and what things are required ultimately for happiness. I'm being a little bit delicate here because this is a G-rated sermon. But I hope you understand what I mean. 
In fact, from all I can gather from the news and media, it is even worse today. It seems that every, every day there's another sensational, salacious news story about what some young people did, who they did it to, when, where, and how often, in the locker room, in the dorm room, in the frat house, on Facebook or Snapchat, with a webcam or a cell phone. Of course, there are exceptions, but for every person who has managed to navigate the peer pressure and emerge unscathed, an untold multiple of that number, see, hear, touch, taste, and inhale substances, images, media, and have myriad experiences which leave deep mental, emotional, and physical scars which will haunt them for the rest of their lives. There may be some of you right here in this hall, there may be some of you watching on 3ABN who know exactly what I am talking about. You've been there, you've done that, and you walk through life bearing the guilt and shame and fear of what you've been through. Satan uses these experiences and these emotions to make you wonder if God is even there. And if he is there, if he cares, or if he cares, if he is even capable of delivering you from this body of death. Satan infiltrates your thinking and makes you, drives you to the point where you would even wish that God did not exist, where you would kill God in your own mind. Because if God does exist, as the Bible describes, and if he is as pure and righteous and holy and just as the Bible says he is, then you would be destined for nothing other than eternal loss. And so you choose to kill God in your own mind and adopt that point of view. It was with this mindset that I limped my way through high school. All the guilt, shame, and confusion hidden behind a facade of perfect grades and musical accolades and admission to world-class schools like Stanford University and the Eastman School of Music. I was chasing the world and doing extremely well by its standards. But all the while, I was ambivalent toward God, I was resentful towards His church, and I had no idea what to believe. I was completely spiritually ungrounded, cast adrift in a sea of worldliness and secularism. Against this backdrop, I went off to Eastman, the Eastman School of Music, and like any freshman, I was looking for a sense of belonging and affiliation. And one of the places that I looked for this was the local chapter of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Of course, there wasn't an Adventist group on campus, but I didn't really mind because as far as I knew, as far as I understood, other than Sabbath keeping, there really wasn't a difference. I will never forget the first Bible study that I attended. There were about 10 of us there. It was led by a senior, a French horn player. His name was Drew. And to get started, we all went around and introduced ourselves. Name, where you're from, what you're studying, and a little bit about your spiritual background. So when it came to my turn, a dialogue, uh, a dialogue ensued that went a little something like this. Hi, my name is David Kim. I'm from San Luis Obispo, California, and I'm here studying cello performance. And my spiritual background is, is Seventh-day Adventist. So Drew says to me, huh, Seventh-day Adventist, that's interesting. 
how did you become Seventh-day Adventist? And I said to Drew, well, my family's Seventh-day Adventist. I grew up in the church. And I also think it's pretty clear from the Bible that, that Saturday, the seventh day, is the day of worship. And Drew says to me, huh, is that right? Well, what about Colossians 2.16? And I looked at him with a blank look on my face, and I, I said, you mean John 3.16? <laughs> no, Colossians 2.16. You're going to have to help me out with that, Drew, because I, I, I have no idea what that verse says. And he said, come on, let's, let's read it together. Let, let's all read it together. In fact, get out your Bibles. Let's read it together. That was an invitation, by the way. <laughs> so I had grown up in the church. I had played swords growing up. I knew that Colossians was in the New Testament. In fact, I had an acronym for it. Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So I knew exactly where to find Colossians. Colossians 2.16. You should follow along. Join me. Colossians 2.16. And I got there and Drew said, all right, go ahead. Go ahead, read this for us. And I walked right into his trap. Colossians 2.16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or... What does your Bible say? Sa my Bible says Sabbath too. Drew says to me, right. You guys, by being so focused on keeping the Sabbath, you're just being legalists. Jesus freed us from the law. I will never forget that moment. I felt mortified as I read those words. I'd never seen that verse in my life, and I had no clue what to think. You'd think that someone who grew up in our church, who had this past, this history that I did, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you would think that someone like me would understand the difference between ceremonial Sabbath and the Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment. And if you don't understand what I just said, you need to talk to your pastor or, or one of the ministries back there in the exhibit hall. I'm sure someone would be willing to explain this to you. But as you just heard, I, I did not receive instruction in the home. And so I felt confused, betrayed, and humiliated. I never went back to that Bible study, and I stopped going to church. My congenital Christianity had metastasized. And while I never gave up on the idea of God, I had no idea who he was. I had no idea what to think, which church was the right one. I was spiritually bewildered, and I checked out of church completely. The next 14 years were a blur. I was in hot pursuit of worldly success, and I was succeeding. Over that period of time, I earned uh, bachelor's and master's degrees in cello performance from top music schools with honors and scholarships. I performed all over the world in prestigious venues under world-class conductors and orchestras. I switched careers and I went to get my MBA at one of the leading programs in the world. I worked at some of the most prestigious companies in all of capitalism. And on the personal front, I married my beautiful wife, and had two lovely children. I thought I had achieved the American dream. 
while my house did not have a white picket fence, I did have a solar heated swimming pool. And given the choice, I will take the pool. Over the years, the Lord had drawn me back into the church. I met and married my wife in the church when I lived in Chicago. I even was serving as an elder in California when we moved out there. But my heart was not converted. I was still just as confused about our message as ever. My theology and lifestyle were a mess. I was prideful, covetous, and ambitious for worldly things. God and church was something I did for my children, just in case it was true. But I was consumed with the world. To top it all off, I had been diagnosed with a rare degenerative bone condition in both of my hips. Over the course of 10 years, I suffered through four unsuccessful surgeries, and I walked with some combination of crutches, canes, and pain. As you can see this evening, I no longer have these. Praise the Lord. But at that time, as far as I could tell, God had left me alone to deal with this on my own, and I was angry at him. Yet through all of this, God was trying to reach me. There would be times at church when I would hear something in a song or a testimony or in a sermon, and my heart would be touched, and my eyes would fill with tears. But I would quickly wipe them away as inconspicuously as possible so that no one would see what had happened. In these moments, I knew that the Holy Spirit was trying to reach me, but I refused to yield to his promptings. I was still too proud, too angry, too consumed with the world, and I didn't know God, much less trust him. I didn't understand the Bible and its message. It didn't make any sense to me. I was congenitally Christian, but my heart was unconverted. It was in this spiritual context that I was sitting in a board meeting. Yes, I was an elder sitting on the church board. It was spring of 2008, and we're talking about putting on our first evangelistic series in over a decade. And the pastor was exhorting, explaining to all the board members the importance of every member attending all the meetings in order to support. And as he was talking, there was something, uh, an internal monologue going through my mind, and it went a little something like this. So what I hear you saying is that you want me to come to church five nights a week for five weeks? <laughs> Who has time for that? I I'm much too busy at work. Who has time for that? All right. I'll come on the weekends. You know, Friday night through Sunday. I'll come on the weekend. Well, I'll come on the Sabbath parts of the weekends. You know, Friday evening through Saturday. Well, I'll definitely come on Saturday. morning because I'd be there anyway but five nights a week for five oh. who has time okay I got it I tell you what I'll write a check I'm happy to write a check to support the meetings but I'm not going to come at least not five nights a week little did I know that God had other plans for me come November Instead of being busy at work, I had been told I needed to find a new job. Which came as a total shock to me because everything was going well. But I, like many others, had been caught in the undertow of the global financial crisis. So the bad news was that I had to look for a new job during one of the worst financial crises in the history of capitalism. 
But the good news was that I had plenty of time to attend the meetings. <laughs> and I thanked the Lord for that opportunity to hear our gospel message in a systematic way. As the evangelist, Brother Taj Pakhlev. Amen. As Brother Taj unfolded the gospel message in a systematic way, night after night, step by step, I could see for the very first time the logic, coherence, and reliability of the Bible and the gospel message. For the first time, I could cut through all the cliches and assumptions that are tied up in our Christian faith, and I could see that the Bible can be trusted. I could see. Yeah, that should get an amen. amen. I could see for the first time why an all-powerful and all-loving God would allow evil and suffering to exist for a season. Say any amens for that? I could see. I could understand the physics of salvation, who Jesus was why he had to die and what he had to do with me. I could see that God has shown us everything that we need to get from here to the second coming through all eternity in his prophetic word if we would only read it. And I could see that all the do's and don'ts associated with God, his law, and even things like the health message are not because God is picky and arbitrary and mean, but because he is preparing us for a literal eternity where we will live in his direct presence. I could see for the first time that God was real and he was real to me because for the first time he made perfect sense. I'll never forget how I felt sitting there in that hall, looking up at the PowerPoint and realizing for the very first time that the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 perfectly foretold the beginning of Christ's ministry in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. And again, if you don't understand what I just said, please go talk to your pastor. I had two immediate thoughts. My first thought was, wow, this is really true. And my second thought was, well, if this is true, I better do something about it. And my life has never been the same. The Lord put me on the road to recovery, and I haven't looked back. The next month was GYC in San Jose, and I took that opportunity to be a local bus guide for the outreach. It was a small step, but it was a big step for me because I had never done anything evangelistic in my entire life. But I thought I could handle being a local bus guide because, as some of you may know, in the outreach at GYC, the local bus guide stays on the bus. <laughs> so I thought I could handle that, and indeed I did. After that, I survived, and so I started to look for other witnessing and training opportunities. I attended AFCO to go, Amazing Facts four-day program, where I learned how to give personal Bible studies. And I also accompanied my church's Bible workers. I praise the Lord for Bible workers. I accompanied my church's Bible worker to follow up leads from GYC. On the job search front, God was faithful. In the middle of the worst economic crisis and the worst job market in over a generation, the Lord provided me not just one, not just two, not just three, not just four, not just five, but six excellent job opportunities, one of which brought me to the Philadelphia area where I live today. And as I embarked on a new job in a new place where I didn't know anybody it's almost if, as if the Lord gave me a clean sheet opportunity to start my life again. Amen. 
And I purposed in my heart that I would be faithful to him in all dimensions of my life, professional and personal, bring my authentic faith to everything I do each day. And it's made all the difference. I have a regular devotional life on a level of depth and consistency that I've never had before. In particular, I am praying more than I ever have before. When I was suffering from congenital Christianity, I would struggle to pray more than two or three minutes a day, and that includes time praying for my food. But now that I'm walking with the Lord and my walk has deepened, He has built out my prayer life to be 20, 30 minutes or more every day and praying without ceasing as I go through my meetings and interactions with the people in my life. The Lord is teaching me how to praise Him like David did in the Psalms. The Lord is teaching me how to confess specific sins so that every day, daily, I confront the darkness of my own heart and realize anew how much I need Jesus. The Lord is teaching me how He's giving me victory over sin. There are sins that I used to have to confess all the time, which by His grace, I rarely or don't even have to confess anymore because God is changing my heart. There are other sins that I had to confess all the time, which I still have to confess all the time. But the Lord teaches me what things are most deeply seated in my heart and how much I need Him. The Lord is teaching me how to pray for others. Intercessory prayer takes us out of our own selfishness and puts us in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed for you and me. The Lord is teaching me how to have spiritual conversations with those around me. He's teaching me how to approach these conversations in a very natural and easy way. I've been having a dozen or more of these spiritual conversations with the people in my sphere of influence on a weekly basis. The Lord is teaching me how to turn these conversations into personal Bible studies. Over the last few years, the Lord has given me the privilege of studying with a wide range of backgrounds and educational and spiritual backgrounds. I've studied with, with atheists and agnostics, Buddhists, evangelicals, doctors, lawyers, MBAs, PhDs, and many others. As a result of these experiences, I have co-founded the Nicodemus Society, a ministry focused on witnessing to the wealthy, worldly, and well-educated, or the W3s of our culture. The Lord has given me opportunities to go all over the country giving seminars, teaching people how to reach what the spirit of prophecy calls this neglected class. If you'd like to learn more about this, please come visit us. Exhibit booth number 231. Or you can visit, visit us at our website, nicodemussociety.org. We'd love to talk with you. That's the end of the commercial. The Lord is teaching me about my family life. I used to rush out the door in the morning before the kids were up and stumble back in through the door after they were asleep. Today we gather for morning prayer and for evening family worship. The Lord is teaching me how to love my wife as Christ loves the church, being willing to give myself for her and treating her as a member of my own body. God is so merciful and good, I'm so thankful to Him that He got a hold of my heart while my children were still young. By His grace, my congenital Christianity will end with me. Amen. I'm by no means perfect, but I'm better than I used to be. And by the grace of God, I'll be more like Jesus every day day by day, from faith to faith, and from glory to glory. So what about you? What about you? Are you suffering from congenital Christianity? Is your religious life, your spiritual life, dry, barren, formulaic, 
Do you feel as if your path in Christianity was passed down from you, predetermined from you by a genealogical heritage from your parents or your grandparents? Or perhaps you came later to the faith, but you've lost your first love. I have good news for you. Because you too have the opportunity, indeed you have the obligation to make your own decision for Christ, to make your own decision for revival. You cannot be saved by your parents' faith. You cannot be saved by your husband or your wife's faith. You cannot be saved by your graduating class. That Adventist school can give you a degree, but it cannot grant you salvation. The choice is up to you. The cure is readily available to you. Jesus is waiting for you. He is at the door. He wants to come in. He wants to destroy that congenital Christianity coursing through your veins and replace it with his saving blood. Jesus knows your heart. He knows your confusion, your hurt, your guilt, your shame. He knows your resentment. He knows all these things. He knows everything about you, and he still wants you. You felt him tugging at your heart. You felt the desire to respond to his precious gift. If only you could believe. If only you could see past whatever barrier, whatever, whatever burden is blocking you from your Savior. If only you could believe that Jesus could reach down and touch your heart and make it new. Make all things new. Brothers and sisters, I have three very specific appeals to make to you this evening. These are not general corporate appeals. These are not a layup. These are specific personal appeals from God to you. My first appeal is this. If you can relate, identify with this congenital Christianity experience that I've just shared with you, please raise your hand where you are right now. Raise your hand, raise it high, and keep it up. Keep it up. Raise your hand if you can relate to the congenital Christianity that I've described here. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for each and every one of you acknowledging that you identify and understand congenital Christianity. My second appeal is this. For those of you who just raised your hands, if you are suffering from congenital Christianity today, if you are suffering from congenital Christianity today and you want to confess before God, that you are suffering from it today, then I would ask you, I would invite you, I would implore you to stand where you are at your seat right now. Stand to confess to the Lord that you suffer from congenital Christianity today. I saw a lot of hands go up. Some of you, and praise the Lord, praise the Lord, you are confessing before God that you suffer from congenital Christianity today. Praise the Lord and remain standing. My third appeal is this. For those of you who have acknowledged before heaven and earth that you suffer from congenital Christianity today, if you want to be free, if you want to say to the Lord, I want to be free of this deadly disease, then I invite you, I implore you to come to the front for a special prayer of consecration and confession. If you 
or if you have congenital Christianity today, but you want to be healed, come to the front. The Lord sees you standing. You've already confessed to him that you suffer from congenital Christianity today. Why would you want to stay in that state? Why would you want to stay? Come to the front. Praise the Lord. Press in. Press in. We need more room. If you're suffering from congenital Christianity today, I still see some of you. You are standing. You've already confessed that you suffer from congenital Christianity, yet can you not say today that you want to be cured? Don't you want the cure today? Praise the Lord. Come to the front. Press in. We need more room. There's plenty of time. Please, I implore you, on behalf of Christ, if you are suffering from congenital Christianity today, come to the front. Keep coming. There's still more. Keep coming. Make room. Praise God. God sees your decision and honors it. Let us pray. Lord God, our Father, you are so merciful to us. You see us before you, confessing our congenital Christianity. Some of us may have been in this disease for a year or two or 10 or 20, but it doesn't matter because this evening, this Sabbath evening, each and every one of us has confessed before you not only that we suffer from congenital Christianity, but we want to be cured today. And Lord, I pray that this would not be merely a response to an appeal, but Lord, that this would be the first day of this every individual's eternal life. That this would be the first day of their revival and reformation. Lord, that you would look down upon them in mercy and touch their hearts and turn from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And we know that you can do this. We know that you can do this. Lord, there are some here who did not stand. And I pray that is because they do not suffer from congenital Christianity. And if that is the case, I praise God for that. I praise God for that because that is what you want for us, to be fully sold out for you. But Lord, there may be some, there may be some who even now, perhaps they, were, they raised their hand, perhaps they stood, but they did not come forward. And Lord, even now, I would say, I would ask, I would implore that the Holy Spirit would not leave that person alone until they make a decision for you, whether it's tonight or some other time. Do not leave that person alone. Lord, you didn't leave me alone. Don't leave that person alone. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Lord, each and every person here has a different path. But Lord, we count on you to be the author and the finisher of our faith. And I pray that every person here would take this declaration before heaven and earth, go back to their homes, go back to their churches, and start walking with you on a daily basis, praying, reading the word, getting to know Jesus, and developing that love relationship with him. Lord, let it not end tonight, but let it go on into eternity. We pray this in the powerful and precious and holy transforming name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.
This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.